I'm journalist Carolyn Osorio, and I invite you to join me and my co-host, Brandon Morgan, on our podcast, Criminal Mischief. From law enforcement officers seeking justice to victims' families seeking answers, every week there's a new case and a new victim whose story deserves to be told. New episodes of Criminal Mischief drop every Tuesday. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of The Casual Criminalist. I, as always, am your host, Simon. Welcome. Welcome. What happens here? One of my writers in this case, Matthew Matt, has written me a script, Carl Panzerum, murderous monster and raging carnate. If you're new to the show, the format here is I've not read this before and we're going to explore it together. So let's just jump in, shall we? Monsters. We've spoken about countless evil people on this show, many of whom could be labelled as monsters and rightfully so, from creatures like Ted Bundy, Ed Gein, Harold Shipman, to beasts like Pedro Lopez, Jeffrey Dahmer, John Wayne Gacy. Yeah, fucking Pedro Lopez. Ah! I did I... I think I must have discussed this. There's like a theory that really warmed my heart that... Because he was he was released from prison after killing like 100 people or something insane. Children, by the way. Um, one of the worst episodes, haunting episodes on this show. And the theory is that uh, he was released from prison and then he was just murdered and no one gave a shit. So no, no police followed up with it. And it's like, good. Oh, I hope his death was very unpleasant. However, in my time following true crime and being a part of this channel, I've come to realize that for all the infamous big names out there that everybody knows, there are numerous monsters from the past that are just as evil, but aren't as well known. Yeah, I'd never heard of Pedro Lopez before. I'd heard of Ed Gein, Jeffrey. Dharma, John Wayne Gacy, Harold Shipman, all of these guys, you know? The originals. But Pedro Lopez never heard of him. And he's the worst one. And with that said, let's talk about a particular monster, one that shockingly isn't talked about as much as the others, when he certainly should be. We find ourselves in Salem, Massachusetts, July the 18th, 1922, where we meet 12-year-old George Henry McMahon. He had spent most of the day at a neighbor's restaurant when he, the owner had asked him to run an errand for him. Being responsible and a neighborly sort of person, George agreed without hesitation. The owner gave him money and off he went, all by himself. Oh no, this isn't the main guy, is it? This is just his victim. Ah, oh, I, I have to say, like, I always feel, oh, 1922, that's like 100 years ago. It does provide this distance from the events, which makes it more tolerable rather than a 12-year-old being murdered yesterday. And I know uh, there is that thing like of time healing all wounds. And it's like, it's really true. Like the longer it is from an event, the easier it does become to bear, which is interesting. Ah, the past where kids could walk on the streets alone without any supervision and not have a worry in the world. Sometimes I'm like taking the tram to work or whatever, or just wandering around and I'll see a kid who's just like alone. And I'll be like, are you like, I don't know. I, it's, I find it very easy. If I look at a kid, my kid, my oldest is three and a half. Any kid below three and a half, I could be like, that kid is that old. But above that, I'll be like, that kid could be eight. That kid could be 12. I just don't know. <laughs> and I was just like, you, you sometimes see like kids just by themselves, like going to school or going to the shop or whatever. And I'm like, aren't you like 10? Should you be out by yourself? And then I realized I used to walk to school by myself when I was 11. So it's not that big of a deal, I guess, but it still feels weird. It's also, I live in a city, which feels a little bit different to like just walking alone in the countryside. As George walked to the store, he soon came across a man. The man was large in stature, muscular in build, had a hard face and dark, emotionless eyes. Sounds like he's gonna get up to some killing! Walking up to the boy, the man gave him a smile and asked what he was doing. Upon hearing George was headed to the store, the man said he would walk in there for his errands, which George agreed. Don't do that, kids. Also, don't listen to this show, kids. What are you doing? If you're a kid listening to this show, stop listening to this show and tell your parents that the YouTube algorithm's done something wrong. And also tell them to install YouTube Kids. 
because then you won't see this content, okay? They walked together, and when they arrived at the store, the man even struck up a conversation with the cashier as George got the supplies for the restaurant. Once they were done, the man looked at George and asked if he would take the trolley with him. He assured George that it wouldn't take long and that he'd be back in the store in no time at all. George, being the trusting boy that he was, agreed. Oh, disclaimer, brace yourselves, everybody. Oh, I already had. I already had. I'm kind of distancing myself from what is going to be the murder of a 12-year-old by trying to inject humor into this, which is not appropriate but at the same time comforting. Getting onto the trolley, the man sat with George, smiling and talking with him the whole way, not giving away even the slightest hint of his intent. Soon enough, they reached their destination, a near-deserted part of town, away from all the prying eyes. Then, just as young George must have been wondering what was happening and questioning his decision to go with the man, he was pinned down by the kind man who had spent most of the day with him. Then, for the next three hours, the man took his time. Can't say that word. Um, but let's just say he's... there's, There's sexual assault... Um, all while he cried out for help that never came. I, and I can't say the word if you're new here because YouTube have been absolutely devastating on the demonetization lately and I like getting paid for the stuff I make. So I'm being a little bit more careful with the words that I use in these episodes. I'm really sorry about that. I know it breaks the flow and I would rather I didn't have to do it, but here we are. All while the boy cried out for help that never came. When the man was finally content, he took a hold of a rock, gazing down at the poor suffering child. The heartless beast brought the rock down hard over and over again, ending George's life in a brutal fashion. Then, as it was just another day in the neighborhood, the man grabbed some nearby branches, dragged them over to the lifeless body of George Henry McMahon, and covered him up to be discovered later. As he was walking back into town, he was reportedly seen by several townspeople exiting the deserted section of town, and they thought nothing of it. They went about their business, none the wiser, to an innocent young life that had just been snuffed out like a dying candle in the wind. So... As we once again venture into the abyss together, I must give you fair warning once again. Simon, and our dear audience, this is just one of this creature's crimes, and it's a taste of what's to come. This is the story of a man so cold and unapologetic for his crimes that it's truly unnerving. He held such contempt for the world and humanity that he believed the only solution was to murder every last person walking the face of the earth. This is the tale of a serial, spree, and mass killer. Um an r-wordist let's go for that i feel like one of these ridiculous youtube channels where they're always like just trying to avoid this but i have to and i I didn't do it for the longest time and now i have to and child assaulter an arsonist a robber burglar on a countrywide scale he is one of the worst monsters in american history suspected of killing over a hundred people he was never given a catchy nickname like most killers and throughout his life he used a number of aliases to try and escape the law but in the end he'd always simply be known as carl pansrum making a monster. Okay, let's rewind and start from the very beginning. Johann John Gottlieb Panzerum and Mathilda Elizabeth Lizzie Panzerum were East Prussian immigrants who owned a large farm near East Grand Forks in Minnesota. They had several children, the sixth being Charles Carl Panzerum, born June the 28th, 1891. Johann and Elizabeth were very work-orientated, as many immigrants are want to be, and they made their children, Carl included, work on the family farm from sunrise to sunset until it became illegal for parents not to send their children to school. <laughs> Thank you, truancy laws. Yeah, it's such a strange like shift in how we run families in the last what couple hundred years because in the past people were like oh no i gotta have kids so they can work for me <laughs> and now it's like i've got to have kids so i can work for them unfortunately for carl and his siblings that didn't deter johan and elizabeth to make up for not being able to make their children work backbreaking labor all day the panzer and parents instead made their children work backbreaking labor all night oh my god that sounds very tiring like to go to school and it's like and now it's night time out on the farm you go but dad i need to sleep no sleep 
Carl later stated that he would get as little as three hours of sleep before having to head to school the next day. That's not something that's maintainable. If you are only sleeping three hours, you're just going to be a zombie of a person and eventually die, surely. And if that wasn't bad enough, Johan and Elizabeth had a pension for chaining up their children as punishment and even went so far as to starve them if they disobeyed or they felt the children were not pulling their weight to support the family. Um, these people clearly don't know the rules. Don't up your kids. We've talked about this. Rule number two, everybody, don't up your kids. Exactly. It's rule number two. Number one, don't write down your crimes. Number two, don't up your kids. It's simple. These are two very important rules, and they're at the top because they're the most important. Yeon eventually abandoned the family when Carl was only seven years old, leaving in the middle of the night never to be seen again. This, along with all the previous poor treatment, set him down a path and he jumped headfirst into it. A year later, Panzerin was arrested and sent to juvenile court for being drunk and disorderly at the age of eight in 1899. Holy the past. <laughs> and when did they introduce like laws where you could buy alcohol? Because that was a really good idea. Look, America, you went too fast, mate, too far, making it 21. <laughs> Which is like, what's up? So you can't like buy alcohol through your whole time at university? It's very strange. And then again at 11 in 1903. Yeah, but you definitely shouldn't be able to buy alcohol at eight. <laughs> That's not what my point was here. It wasn't long before he began breaking into people's homes to burglarize them. A sign of things to come. Eventually, Elizabeth had enough and sent her son away to the Minnesota State Training School. Located in Red Wing along the Mississippi River, this facility was still a juvenile reform institution. At the time, the institution housed approximately 300 boys aged 10 to 20 and was a place meant to instill order and structure to young men. Now, it sounds like this should have been the perfect place for Panzerum, a place for him to straighten up and fly right. However, instead of fixing him, it did the exact opposite. According to Panzerum later, Panzerum's later autobiography, the entire time he was housed at the school, he was repeatedly beaten, tortured, and sexually assaulted, let's say, by the staff members. Hell, on the first day there, Panzerum claimed that he was taken into an office by a male staff member where he was stripped, asked about his sexual experiences, and, well, then some fairly dark stuff happens to him. During that, I mean, this is like, this sounds more like, is what did you call it? Like, juvenile reform institution? It sounds like basically prison, like children's prison. Um, and you're like, <laughs> people who go to prison don't end up like, oh yeah, you went to prison and it fixed me. It's like, no, you went to prison and you became a worse criminal. I feel like that's what prison, prison's like, it doesn't reform people, does it? There's not, I guess that's what it's supposed to do. But you're just putting a lot of people who do crimes in the same location and expecting them not to do more crimes. It's really strange. During their lessons, Panzerum and the other boys were taught about good old-fashioned Christian values, and all the while they were beaten, abused, and attacked for the amusement of the guards. There was even a designated room in which they did this, which Panzerum and the other children called the paint shop, not because they often left the room painted with bruises and blood. Now, none of this is officially confirmed, but one thing is true. Panzerum hated the school with a burning passion, so much so that on the night of July the 7th, 1905, he created a firebomb and successfully burned down the building that housed the paint shop as revenge, all while going completely undetected and checking off another item from the serial killer checklist. Yeah, setting things on fire. That is, like, torturing animals, setting things on fire. The upbringing, reform school. During his time at the school, Panzerum claims to have committed his first murder, that of a 12-year-old boy. Oh my god. However, he never disclosed the victim's name, and there are no official records uh, to verify this claim. Trust me when I say that that'll be a theme going forward, and given his reputation as a skilled liar, it's likely this is just another one of his tall tales. Okay, that's a nice relief. Soon enough, he was able to convince the staff that he had been reformed, and he was no longer a danger to himself or others. As a result, he was released into the care of his mother at the age of 13 in 1906. His abusive parents, his abusive mother. So, 
he was abused. They send him to a reform school where the abuse gets turned up to 11. And then they're like, good news, you get back, get to go back to the slightly less abusive place where they just chain you up and make you work all night. As Pandram himself later stated in his memoirs, I was reformed all right. I had been taught by Christians how to be a hypocrite. And I learned more about stealing, lying, hating, burning, and killing. So, what is a boy to do when he wants to get away from his abusive mother and stay as far away from farm life as possible? Why, join the clergy, of course. I thought he was going to join the military. Often you have this one where these people, like in the... There's been casual criminals before, and the story gets to this point, and they join the military, and then they get discharged from the military for doing something bad or just not being able to handle it, and then it goes downhill from there. But nope, this guy joined the church. He convinced his mother that he wished to become a priest and was sent to the nearby Emmanuel Lutheran Church. Did this have any positive change on him? No, of course not. And after a two-week period, he was expelled after attempting to murder his Lutheran cleric teacher with a revolver that he somehow got hold of. <laughs> Holy you just got expelled? Why are you not in prison? It's attempted murder. He never returned home, jumping on a train bound for Minnesota, becoming a drifter, going from town to town, hopping on freight trains, and spending nights sleeping on the streets or in empty train cars. At this point, Pat Zerum was already an angry teenager filled with hate and resentment towards his family and loathing how his life was turning out. Unfortunately, things only got worse for him. According to Carl, while he was sleeping in an empty train car one night, he was approached by a group of homeless men. They spoke kindly to him, promised to take care of him, that they'd give him a warm place to sleep and good clothes, but they wanted something in return. They leapt onto Panzerum, held him down, and took turns. Well, another word I can't say, as he kicked and screamed powerless to stop them. To quote his autobiography, I left that box a sadder, sicker, but wiser boy. I made up my mind that I would rob, burn, destroy, and kill everywhere I went since everybody I could, as long as I lived. The Man of Many Names and Crimes Upon reaching Butte, Montana, in the summer of 1906, Panzerum, still homeless and without any money, started committing burglaries around the area. He was eventually caught and jailed and was sentenced to a year at the Montana State Reform School in Miles City. Yeah, that worked great for him last time. While there, Panzerum claimed that he was punished severely by one of the guards. In response, Panzerum grabbed a wooden board and proceeded to beat and brutalize the guard, leaving him in critical condition before being placed in solitary confinement as punishment. However, Panzerum's time in jail was short-lived, as in 1907, he and fellow inmate James Jimmy Benson managed to escape. Wow. Okay. <laughs> escape in prison? Oh, it's reform school, though. It's not prison. They have big, like, razor wire fences and stuff around the reform school, or is this just, like, open prison? Where it's just like, oh, no, he wandered off. <laughs> now, I know what you're thinking, Simon. Oh, well, they should be caught in no time, right? Usually when people escape jail, they're caught relatively soon afterwards. Yes, I think almost everyone who escapes prison. It's like, it's a hugely high percentage of people who are almost always captured and sent back to prison. Normally, you'd be right, but not in this case. Panzer and Benson managed to elude the police and even managed to steal some guns while on the run. This is going to be another theme with Panzer going forward, effectively avoiding capture and slipping out of jail whenever given the chance out of jail, escaping prison. With that, they wreaked havoc along the US-Canadian border, perpetrating a string of burglaries, robberies, and arsons throughout the Midwest before eventually going their separate ways in Fargo, North Dakota. They particularly targeted churches at Panzerum's insistence, stealing all they could and setting them ablaze after they were done. Was this a way to get back at God for not helping him in his time of need throughout his harsh life? It would seem likely at the very least. In an excerpt from his confessions later on, Panzerum spoke fondly of their time together to quote, I stayed with him for about a month, hoeing our way east, stealing and burning everything we could. I taught him how to set fire to a church after we robbed it. We got very busy on that, robbing and burning a church regular every chance we got. <laughs> oh my god, dude. Like, why? God, you f***ed me, so I'm gonna burn down these buildings. Don't get it. 
Surprisingly, one night when he was 16 and drunk, Panzerum enlisted for the US Army. Oh, there we go. We do have a little army chapter. Let me guess. He doesn't survive very long in the army. And was assigned to the 6th Infantry at Fort William Henry Harrison. Normally, the army works to instill structure, order, and discipline into their troops. You'd think that having willingly signed up, that he'd at least attempt to follow the rules to conform and be a good soldier. But of course he didn't, because nobody could tell Karl Panzerum what to do. Tell you what, if no one can tell you what to do, the army is not the place for you. In fact, maybe the world's not the place for you because at some point, someone's going to tell you what to do. People tell, like, I feel like I'm in charge of, like, what I do. And still people tell me what to do all the time. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> you got to do what people tell you sometimes. And if you've joined the army, you've really got to do what people tell you because they have, like, a whole hierarchy of stuff that's ranks. <laughs> Panzerum was the furthest thing from a model soldier, disobeying his superiors and being locked up multiple times for his conduct and insubordination. It all came crashing down soon enough as he broke into the quartermaster's building, stole approximately $88 worth of clothing, and attempted to go AWOL. Panzerum was promptly arrested, thrown in the stockade, court-martialed, and found guilty of three charges of larceny before he was dishonorably discharged and, on April the 20th, 1908, was sentenced to three years of hard labor at Fort Leavenworth in Kansas. <laughs> Do they have hard labor anymore? I feel like, obviously not in Europe, but then America, I don't know, I feel like you could have that, right? Because prison seems like, you know, there's lots of people in prison and it's like this for-profit thing. So uh, are there prisoners out there like chains up building roads and shit? <laughs> I mean, it sounds insane, but I'm also not against the idea of making prisoners work because they, then they can earn some money I don't, and, and probably for the cheap. And what, what else are they going to do? Like sit around working out and watching telly? Come on. The order was signed by then-Secretary of War William Howard Taft, and Panzerum would hold a grudge against Taft in the years to come. He was released in 1910, but the damage was done. Afterwards, Panzerum stated that if there was any goodness left in him, regardless of his actions or attitude, all of that died within the walls of Fort Leavenworth. So, are we starting to see a pattern here? Every single time this man has gotten into trouble and further thrown his life into disarray, it was of his own making. Sure, he had a pretty terrible start and his family life didn't help, but he had multiple chances to get his life together and become a decent person, but he just didn't take it. Yeah, I mean, you can say, oh, he had a terrible upbringing and all of this stuff all you want, but at some point you've got to be like, okay, but there's some element of personal responsibility here because he's fucking murdering people. And there's lots of people who had terrible upbringings, I'm sure worse upbringings than this, even though this is absolutely horrific. And it's like, they turned out fine. I mean, they're probably a little bit f***ed up inside, but they're not murdering people. So yeah, you've got to have some like self-responsibility. He could have been a successful farmer like his siblings. He could have been a successful member of the clergy. He could have been a successful part of the military. And he pissed it all away because of his unyielding hurt, malice, and hatred. I don't know if he could. He just seems like a bit of an idiot, to be honest. Like, I don't think he could handle that. By the time he was released from Fort Leavenworth, Pansman, Panzerum was a large man, muscular and imposing, sporting a bushy Roosevelt-style moustache. The monster was free, and he was ready to do anything he pleased, trampling anyone who dared stand in his way. Returning to his drifter lifestyle, Panzerum traveled throughout Kansas, Texas, Oregon, California, Washington, Idaho, and Utah, all in which he committed crime after crime. He robbed people. He assaulted people. He committed multiple acts of arson. And most heinous of all, he committed numerous acts of sexual assault. Panzerum stated that he mostly targeted men for his robberies and afterwards he'd force the victims down and um, attack them. He was bigger than them, stronger than them, and in his mind that made them no more than his prey. He was made to feel small and weak numerous times when he was younger, his innocence taken away, and now that he was strong, he was going to make others feel that exact same pain. At times he described himself as rage personified. And that sounds fairly accurate. In describing himself and his views, Panzerum was quoted in his memoirs as saying, I don't believe in man, God, nor devil. I hate the whole damn human race, including myself. I preyed upon the weak, the harmless, and the unsuspecting. 
This lesson I was taught by others. Might makes right. With that, Panzerum's life became a revolving door of crime, jail, escape, repeat. Whether it was in Rask, Texas, Fresno, California, the Dallas, Oregon, Harrison, Idaho, Chinook, Montana, he simply couldn't help himself. He would go on a crime spree, hurting and stealing from people. He'd end up arrested and did either escape outright or would be given a short enough sentence that it'd be released back onto the streets. I feel like there's that... Is that three-strike law an American thing, or is that like some specific state? Where it's like, if you commit three crimes then they send you to prison forever or something like that, right? America. And I'm like, that seems insane until you're like, well, what about the people who are repeat offenders? Like this guy, surely by the fifth time he's escaped from prison, they should be like, how about we put you in a concrete box and we do that like unibomber where you got to get to go outside for like one hour a day and you walk around in a little courtyard and then we put you back in your little concrete box and we never let you out because you escaped from prison many times and just we know what's going to happen next time you escape from prison or get let out of prison we should just have you in prison forever let's put him in prison forever what's wrong with that even once arrested after he was caught trying to sell some of the goods he'd stolen breaking all your rules simon these people just don't seem to learn and on top of that while on the run in mexico after escaping a chain gang in texas oh that's the that's that's what it's called where you have the people all chained up and building a road a chain gang he tried to enlist in the federales or the mexican federal army because his attempted american military life was so well. In 1911, Panzerum would make his way to California. While there, he claimed to have been on a boxcar when he came upon someone he referred to as a railway detective or a railway brakeman. This man was armed, and before he could react, Panzerum overpowered him and took his gun. Then, gun in hand, he forced the man to... R word, a homeless man on the same boxcar, the vehicle being so loud and crowded that it went unseen by the other passengers. Jesus, man, what the fuck's wrong with you? That evil deed done, Panzerum then proceeded to throw them both off of the train before sitting back down and enjoying the rest of his ma- ride. Can you say psycho? Yes, I can, Matt. Fucking psycho, bro. What the f- I made mention at the start that he went by a number of aliases, and it's here that we run into them. For almost his entire life, Carl Panzerum seemed to try seemed to be trying to escape who he really was, trying to become someone else. Really? It just seems like to me he re- he embraced his like mental inner demon. And he's just like, F it, I'm gonna kill everything and burn everything down. It seems like he's just like, that's who I am, and I'm into it. It seems like uh, <laughs> The one good thing about Carl Pranzerum, he was authentic to himself. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Nearly every time he was arrested, he gave the police a different name, and communication between the authorities in the past wasn't the best, so it was difficult to tie all of his crimes together. So much for that three-strike rule that you love to bring up, huh, boss? Yes. Yes, the three-strike rule. We already discussed it. <laughs> I didn't realize I'd brought it up so many times before. <laughs> Whether it was Jefferson Davis, Jack Allen, Jefferson Rhodes, Jefferson Jesse Baldwin, Carl Baldwin, Henry Panzerum, John King, John O'Leary, or John Cooper II, it was all Carl Panzerum, and it would all come together in a spiderweb of crime in the end. In 1915, Panzerum was arrested for burglarizing a house and sentenced to seven years in prison to be served at the Oregon State Penitentiary in Salem, Oregon. Arriving there on June the 24th, 1915, Panzerum made quick enemies with the superintendent of the prison, Warden Harry Minto, a man who believed in harsh treatments of his inmates, including beatings and isolations, among other disciplinary measures. If I was sent to prison, I'd really try not to piss off the warden. Because <laughs> he's in charge, and you're locked up basically in his house. <laughs> I'll be like, hey, warden, love you, man. Love you. Yeah, you keep on beating. I love getting beaten, warden. I love it. <laughs> Panzer made his unwillingness to comply quite clear, stating, I swore I would never do that seven years, and I defied the warden and all his officers to make me. The warden swore I would do every damn day, or he would kill me. While imprisoned, 
Panzer and befriended fellow inmate Otto Hooker and helped him escape from the prison. In doing so, Hooker murdered Minto while evading recapture. This officially marked Panzerim's first known involvement in a murder, albeit as an accessory before the fact. Panzerim himself managed to escape on September 18, 1917, but he was soon recaptured after two shootouts with the police, during which he kill, almost killed De Chief Deputy Sheriff Joseph Frum. Less than a year later, on May 12, 1918, Panzerim somehow managed to get his hands on a hacksaw and was able to saw through the bars of his cell. <laughs> This guy, how how do you escape from prison so many times and they're not putting you into like a special concrete box? Come on! He changed his name to John O'Leary, shaved his distinctive moustache, and caught a freight train heading east, never to return to the American Northwest. Honestly, probably for the best. <laughs> like, you, if you escape prison, you gotta leave, bro, and not just leave the state. You should leave the country. You should like go down to Brazil and start a new life down there. Hoist the sails. Finding himself in New York, Panzer applied for and received a seaman's identification card, allowing him to join a steamship, namely the James S. Whitney, and sail down to Panama. Yes, not only is Panzer an American monster, but an international monster as well. I told you, you gotta leave the country, bro. While there, he got together with an intoxicated sailor and convinced him to steal a small boat with him. During the attempted boat jacking, the sailor ended up murdering everyone on board the boat, uh, for which he was imprisoned, while Panzer got away scot-free. <laughs> what the f just casually. Like, for most people, that would be the most dramatic thing that ever happens to you in your life. Yeah, I stole a boat with a dude and then he murdered everyone except for me and went to prison forever. Holy sh just like as an aside. While aboard the steamship, he traveled all over the world from London, England to Glasgow, Scotland, from Paris, France to Hamburg, Germany. <laughs> Wait, he traveled all over the world. It seems like he traveled to Western Europe. There's no information I could find to indicate that he committed any substantial crimes in these locations. That wouldn't surprise me. Eventually, though, he disembarked from the James S. Whitney, continuing his crime spree back on the mainland U.S. Panzerum next traveled to New Haven, Connecticut, and broke into a large mansion to burglarize it. <laughs> What a surprise. But it was not just any mansion. No, this was William H. Taft's mansion. Wait, the same guy who signed him off to the chain gang. And it's, didn't Taft become president? That's right, the home of the 27th president of the United States, thank you. And the secretary of war that Panzerum had held a grudge against for all those years. Yes, big brain me. Taft, thankfully, wasn't at home at the time and nobody was hurt, but Panzerum got away with a large amount of jewelry and bonds, as well as Taft's Colt M1911 45 caliber handgun. He hadn't known who had owned the mansion until he saw the name on the bonds he had pilfered. I can practically feel the vindictive smile curling on his lips at his good fortune. Really? They, they, it just coincidentally happened to rob this dude's house? What are the odds? And also, why would you steal bonds with someone's name on them? It would be like if someone broke into my house and stole like specific money that had my name on it, and then they took and I reported it to the police, and then they take it to the shop, and it's like, oh, yeah, I'd like to use some of this Whistler coin. And they'd be like, did you steal this? Because this is Simon's. <laughs> like, how's that work? Panzerum went on to fence most of the items he stole from the mansion once he reached Manhattan, but one thing he kept was the handgun. He would put it to bad use soon enough. With the money he gained, he purchased his own boat, a yacht he named the Akista. Cruising along the East River, eventually making a stop on Manhattan's Lower East Side, he took notice of the number of sailors making their way inland, disembarking their work vessels, attending to the local taverns to unwind from their long days at sea. It was here that Panzerum hatched a plan. A plan to once more lie in his pockets and spill more blood. Panzerum was careful when selecting his victims, never targeting more than one or two at a time. He would meet with a local seaman, acting harmless and nonchalant. He'd speak with them, allow them to let their guard down, and then say he could use a deckhand or two to help him take care of his new yacht. Seeing this as easy payday, the sailors would accept being led back to the Akista. Once on board, the men would work with Panzerum for a day or two, taking care of the yacht as the job implied, unaware of Panzerum's true intentions. Then one night, Panzerum would produce alcohol for the men, allowing them to drink as much as they wanted. 
After drunkenly heading to bed, the men would pass out and then never wake up again. With each and every man he brought aboard the Akista, Carl Panzerum walked into the room as they slept, produced Taft's 45 handgun, placed it to their heads, and blew them away without hesitation. He robbed them of their possessions, tied rocks to their bodies, and dumped them near the Execution Rocks Lighthouse in Long Island Sound. Panzerum claimed to have killed a total of 10 men in this manner over the course of three months. Unfortunately, the names of these victims has been lost to time and to the sea. Soon enough, though, the locals of the Lower East Side started becoming suspicious. Numerous sailors had gone missing over the week, each last seen boarding a yacht belonging to Carl Panzerum. Dude, <laughs> how blasé were you being? You're just like, they never seem to come off the boat, and the boat's not that large. Unless we go on there, and there's like 10 sailors on there, <laughs> just hanging out. He killed them. All I can say is it took them long enough. Sensing this, he knew that he had to leave and set up shop elsewhere. After luring two men onto the boat, he set sail down the coast of New Jersey towards Long Island Beach. However, his luck aboard his beloved yacht had come to an end. Panzerum was caught in a terrible storm near Atlantic City, New Jersey, and the wind sent a keister crashing against the jagged rocks, smashing the boat to pieces, the remains sinking down to the bottom of the sea. Panzerum was thrown from the yacht and managed to make it to shore. Thankfully, so did his two would-be victims, who managed to escape ashore, free from Panzerum's clutches. Wow. You guys got mega lucky. <laughs> this time for Africa. After being arrested for burglary in Stamford, Connecticut on October 26, 1920 and serving six months in jail, Panzerum took to the seas once again. Stowing aboard a ship, he traveled across the Atlantic and found himself in Central Africa. Specifically, he landed in the city of Luanda, the capital of Angola, a Portuguese colony at the time, on the west coast of Africa. Now, this seems like it might be a chance for a fresh start, right? An entire ocean between him and anyone who might be hunting for him. Yeah, but every time he's done this before, he's just like, great, this is a new opportunity for me to become a horrible piece of criminal again. Woo! This is exactly what's going to happen. He's not going to change. He's not like, oh yeah, I want a fresh sheet. This man has admitted that he just wants to murder people and burn sh down. That's his life's goal. While in Angola, he got a job as a foreman in an oil rig with the Sinclair Oil Company. This didn't last long, though, and after he was let go from his job, he burned the whole oil rig down out of pure spite. Panzerum then approached a poverty-stricken family in Angola, and he offered them 80 shooters or 80 US dollars for, as he put it, a virgin girl. Now, in a just world, they would have turned the degenerate down flat, but that's not the reality we live in. No, I don't want to... No, 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 no. I don't like that. Um, Let's just say something really horrible happens to a young person, and... um. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Yeah. I read it. The whole thing. Then, suspecting that the girl wasn't actually a virgin, he returned her to the family and demanded his money back. Instead, the family handed him. Let's just say that. Let's just say that now Carl needs to be killed. Regardless, it seems that old Carl wasn't satisfied. It isn't specified exactly when, but sometime after leaving the family, Panzerum came across an 11 year old boy. We sadly don't know the name of that child, but he was abducted in broad daylight, taken into the brush, and. Oh, he was attacked viciously. Then his need satiated, Panzerum grabbed a nearby rock and smashed the boy's head in, killing him and leaving him there to be discovered later. 
After the boy's body was found, many of the locals suspected that Panzerum was involved. He already had a reputation as a nasty and violent man, however, they had no evidence linking him directly to the murder at the time, so it wasn't investigated further. Panzerum then moved to Libito Bay, staying in a fishing village nearby. While there, Panzerum walked into a local bar and came across a group of six men. He informed them that he wished to go out crocodile hunting and he wanted their help on the expedition. The men agreed and seven of them exited the bar together and got into a fishing boat, the whole affair being witnessed by multiple people both in the bar and in the town. They traveled down the river and soon the crocodiles appeared, curious about the interlopers in their territory. As the six men reached for their hunting gear, six bangs ran out. All the men collapsed in the boat and Panzerum stood over them all, gun in hand. Then, as if for good measure, he shot them all once more in the back of the head before tossing them overboard, watching as the surrounding crocs devoured them all. There was no reason. There was no motive. He simply wanted to kill. So he did. Recounting the incident in his memoirs, he stated, To some of average intelligence, killing six at once seems an almost impossible feat. It was very much easier for me to kill those six. Can't say that word. Than it was for me to kill only one of the young boys I killed later, and some of them were only 11 or 12 years old. And the word that I couldn't say, um is a racist word so we can add um piece of racist to his uh litany of of horrible things about him now panzerum knew that he couldn't return to the village after this as he stated numerous people had witnessed him hire six men and leave the docks with them and if he came back alone their suspicions would have skyrocketed so he sailed to the golden coast where he robbed a number of local farmers saving up money from each robbery he bought his way onto a ship to the canary islands before stowing away on a ship bound for lisbon portugal this wasn't a reprieve though as mentioned before angola at the time was a province of portugal his multitude of crimes had caught up with him and people had taken notice enough enough suspicion and circumstances occurred that it made it all the way to the top and panzerum was officially being hunted for all the crimes he had perpetrated while in africa so he remained hidden and seizing the opportunity, Panzerum snuck aboard another ship and headed out to sea. Return to America By the summer of 1922, Carl Panzerum was back on American soil. He returned to drifting and in doing so eventually made his way to Salem, Massachusetts. Outside of his normal stints of burglary and robbery, he hadn't killed again, but that soon changed. It's at this point that he'd run into young George Henry McMahon and commit the heinous crime that we opened the story with. Poor George was just the latest in a string of villainy, and he was far from the last. A year went by, and Panzerum once again found himself near New Haven, Connecticut, searching around for someone to rob. He spotted a young boy begging for money by the side of the road. And sadly, you know where this is going. He pulled out a knife on the child, he forced him into the nearby woods, and he repeatedly attacked the boy before taking the belt off the boy's pants and strangling with it. And afterwards, well, let's just say he adds necrophilia to his long list of crimes. He left the boy's body to be taken care of by the local wildlife. We don't know the child's name, nor do we know the circumstances that led to him begging on the street, but he was a child. He was innocent. He didn't deserve any of this. None of them did. In June 1923, Panzerum came across a yacht in New Rochelle, New York, one that was coincidentally owned by the local chief of police. He stole it, of course, and took to the water once again. Don't steal the boat. Don't steal the chief of police's yacht. Just steal a yacht from someone who's not the chief of police, okay? Simple. Shortly afterwards, while sailing through Yonkers, New York, he picked up 15-year-old George Willowson and proceeded to... Oh, R-word him. But instead of killing George when he was finished, he kept him alive and on board to help him manage the boat, along with satisfying his depraved needs. You kidnapped someone and made them a slave. What the f***? 
Afterwards, Panzerim picked up a man while on the river near Kingston, New York. According to him, the man attempted to rob him. So in return, Panzerim took the 38 caliber pistol he found on the yacht and killed the passenger, disposing of his body into the river. Why does he need to say he attempted to rob me? You've, you murder innocent people for no reason. You don't need to have an excuse, Carl. Once again, we don't know the name of this unfortunate individual. However, we do know that he existed due to what happened after the fact. Upon reaching Newbera in New York, George Willowson, having seen the murder of the newest passenger days before and being subjected to Panzerum's repeated sexual assaults, made a break for it. As soon as he had the chance, George dove overboard and swam to shore, successfully avoiding Panzerum and making his way back to Yonkers. He headed straight to the police, reported all that had happened to him, and an alert went out across all of New York for one Captain John O'Leary. Panzerum was arrested on June the 29th in Nyack, New York. Was this the end of his reign of terror? No, of course not, because people of the past were easily gullible. After a failed escape attempt on July the 9th, he tricked his own lawyer into taking ownership of the stolen yacht in exchange for bail. Panzerum was released, he skipped out on the bail, the stolen boat was confiscated, and the monster was once more in the wind. How do you get bail when you commit crimes like this? There should be no bail for this sort of violent crime. That's crazy. Panzerum made his way to Larchmont, New York, where he attempted to rob a train station on August 26, 1923. He was in the process of rummaging through a number of bags and suitcases when he was caught and apprehended by a nearby police officer. Identifying himself as John O'Leary, he was charged with four counts of burglary and remanded to the county jail pending grand jury action. Bail was set at $5,000, which is, that's a lot of money today. Surely that's like a hundred grand or something. He attempted to cut a deal with the DA to get a lighter sentence and pled guilty, but the DA reneged on the deal, forcing Panzerum to serve the full five years at the Clinton Correctional Facility located in the village of Dannemore in New York. At this time, Clinton Correctional was considered to be one of the most brutal prisons in the nation. Oh no, he's got to go to the brutal prison. Oh, what a shame. And the staff saw the inmates as nothing more than animals, while well, correct in Panzerum's case. He attempted to escape by climbing one of the high outer walls, only to fall 30 feet, break both of his legs and ankles, and badly injure his spine. And again, oh no, he did! What a shame! What a shame that he has broken so many bones and has hurt his spine. That's so sad. I wish he hadn't. No, it makes me... Uh, it's like, I'm happy that that happened to him. Fuck this guy. Did the staff get him, take him, treated? No chance in hell. As according to Panzerum, I was dumped into a cell without any medical attention or surgical attention whatsoever. My broken bones were not set. My ankles and legs were not put into a cast. The doctor never came near me, and no one else was allowed to do anything for me. At the end of 14 months of constant agony, I was taken to the hospital when I was where I was operated on for my rupture, and one of my testicles was cut off. Holy sh... I mean... Yeah... I don't I I just don't feel bad for this dude because he's a horrible monster who deserves to die. Um Yeah, I I really I can't summon empathy. I can just imagine him writhing in pain with all his broken legs and stuff and they're all nasty and fucked up in prison and I'm like, yeah. Yeah. Generally I'm not into torturing people, but this guy <laughs> Oh my god. After this, Panzerum got his hands on another inmate, uh, attacking him sexually, for which he was thrown into solitary confinement for the remainder of his sentence, an entire two years and four months, with barely any recognition from the guards. Panzerum was eventually released in 1928. The Madman's End now in constant pain from his previous injuries, Panzerum started plotting evil on a much grander scale. He wanted to hurt as many people as he possibly could. He wanted to watch scores of innocent people die before his eyes. So he started plotting. One of his ideas? To obliterate the whole population of a city by poisoning the water supply by arsenic. Another idea? Stealing a British warship docked in New York City Harbor so he could start another war between Britain and America. Yes, delusional doesn't even begin to cover the insanity that he would think up. He simply didn't care anymore. He just wanted to watch everyone around him die painful deaths. After his release, 
Panzer moved to Philadelphia, where he continued his crime spree until he was finally arrested in Baltimore, Maryland on August 30, 1928, for a burglary he'd committed 10 days prior. The arrest was significant, as it was the first time in years that Panzer had given his real name. While in custody, Panzer made several comments about the killings of children. Why he decided to finally confess is anybody's guess, but he made a full-blown confession to the murder in Salem, the one in Connecticut, the death of a 14-year-old newsboy in Philadelphia, which was later confirmed, and the murder of a boy in Charleston, Massachusetts, which they couldn't confirm. In a letter to the DA of Salem, he wrote the following, I made a full confession of the murder of McMahon. You send a number of witnesses from Salem to identify me, which they done. I do not change my former confession in any way. I committed that murder. I alone am guilty. I not only committed that murder, but 21 besides, and I assure you here and now that if I ever get free and have the opportunity, I shall knock off another 22. And then they'll be like, okay, five years prison. It's like, no, throw away the key. For God's sake! When Panzerin was searched, many papers were found on him, as he had begun writing his autobiography while on the road and in prison. <laughs> He's writing down his crimes, isn't he? In which he went into detail about his many crimes! He was soon sent to trial, where he acted as his own defense, which is not a good idea if you actually plan on walking free. It didn't go well for him, and thanks to his extensive criminal record coming to light, Panzerin was sentenced to 25 years to life in prison, finally at Leatherworth Federal Penitentiary. Panzerin made his intentions to the warden very clear. I'll kill the first man that bothers me. Bro, didn't you just spend like two and a half years in solitary confinement? Did you like it? Do you want to spend ten times that long in solitary? Because if you're like, Warden, I'm going to kill people in your prison. Solitary! Put him in the hole! With those words, Panzerum was assigned to laundry duty and was not allowed to be in general population. He was able to work alone and in peace, but he still required supervision. Robert Wonk was that supervision. A foreman at the prison, he was known for bullying and harassing the prisoners under him, including Panzerum. Despite Panzerum's repeated warnings to leave him alone, Wonka continued to pester and belittle him, letting his power over the violent serial killer go to his head. Now, we don't victim blame here on this channel, but he didn't help his situation. On the 20th of June 1929, Panzer had finally had enough. He grabbed an iron bar and cornered Wonka, beating him to death in front of numerous other inmates. The other inmates, terrified out of their minds, tried to escape from the scene, and Panzerum started swinging at them as well. Panzerum was subdued and charged with the murder of Robert, Robert Wonka, going on trial on April the 14th, 1930, where he once again acted as his own defense. Because it worked so, because it worked so well the first time. <laughs> oh God! I mean, you're f though, mate. Like, what's what? You may as well just not bother defending yourself. You you murdered someone in a prison in front of witnesses. What do you think is going to happen? Carl Panzerin was found guilty. As for his sentence, he was finally given punishment befitting a monster such as him: death by hanging. Finally, Panzerum though he was overjoyed. It seemed that in the end he got exactly what he wanted, as he was witnessed laughing like a lunatic as he was taken from the courtroom after he was condemned. He was placed on death row, and whenever the option to appeal his sentence was proposed, he outright refused. At the time, a number of human rights groups were protesting the death penalty, and they reached out to him, hoping to intervene and spare his life. <laughs> Are you not familiar with the? Sh that this monster has done. And I get that you're like against the death penalty in general, but can't we make an exception for old Carl here? He was enraged with their interference and threatened to murder everyone and anyone who attempted to stop his execution should he get free. <laughs> and he's got free many times, so watch out. Right into them he stated, The only thanks you and your kind will ever get from me for your efforts on my behalf is that I wish you all had one neck and I had my hands on it. I have no desire whatsoever to reform myself. My only desire is to reform people who try to reform me and I believe that the only way to reform people is to kill them. Holy sh dude. And they're like, no, Carl, we want to save you. We want to save you, Carl. And Carl's like, I will f 
fucking end you. As he awaited his execution, Panzerum was shown a small act of kindness that seemed to resonate with him more than anything else. An officer named Henry Philip Lesser gave him money for cigarettes, and the two formed a genuine friendship. One day, Panzerum asked Lesser for writing materials. He continued to write, documenting his life and crimes, and once again stated that he had no remorse for his terrible actions. Quote, In my lifetime, I've murdered 21 human beings. I've committed thousands of burglaries, robberies, larcenies, arsons, and last but not least, I've committed sodomy on more than a thousand male human beings. For all these things, I am not the least bit sorry. Finally, the day arrived. September the 5th, 1930, 5.55 a.m. Panzerum was taken from his cell and led to the gallows. As he climbed the 13 steps, the noose waiting for him, he cursed his mother for bringing him into the world, and when they attempted to place the black hood over his head, Panzerum spat in the executioner's face. When asked for his final words, Panzerum didn't hesitate. Hurry up, you Hoosier bastard. I could kill 10 men while you're fooling around. Hood and noose affixed. The time had finally come. At 6.03 a.m., the trap door underneath him fell open, and Panzerum dropped, his life ending with a resounding crack. Excellent. <laughs> good, 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 good. Happy ending. He was left swinging there for several minutes before he was cut down. Carl Panzerum, aged only 39, was pronounced dead at 6.18 a.m. With no one willing to claim his body, he was buried in the Leavenworth Penitentiary Cemetery. The only indication where he was laid to rest, a stone embedded in the earth overtop his remains, marked only with his prisoner number 31614. Wrap up. And that, as they say, is that, as stated before, sometimes monsters seem to simply slip through the cracks, both during investigations as well as in history. Carl Panzerum is one such monster. He cut a swath of murder and mayhem all over the US, and it seemed that nothing and nobody could stop him. He was sent to prison on many occasions, but almost each and every time he was either released back into the world to commit more crimes, or he managed to escape with near relative ease. There was no grand pursuit of him, no hero officers or individuals of note that hunted him down. He simply got caught in another robbery, and almost as if he was simply sick of life on the outside, he confessed to murders that no one had known he committed. And it all snowballed from there. Just the story of an evil, terrible man doing evil, terrible things. To this day, even when all is said and done, his name is hardly mentioned, even when talking about big-name criminals, and maybe that's a good thing. Normally in this section, I like to list out the name of the victims, but today, that's very hard to do. Only a few names were identified as victims of Panzerum, and there have been a vast number of others who either were never identified or may never have existed in the first place. So here we remember those that we can. George Henry McMahon, George Willowson, Robert Wonk. And here we think of those lost and forgotten. I think all of the men he attacked. I think of all of the sailors he killed on his yacht. I think of the two young girls he molested in Africa, as well as the six men he gunned down in the boat. I think of the beggar boy he violated and murdered in cold blood. I remember them now, when he never bothered to. As for those papers Panzerum wrote his autobiography on and all the letters, well, Henry Lesser kept them all for safekeeping, and for a long time he attempted to get them published as an official book. He was turned down multiple times, as people felt a bit uneasy about giving publicity to such a monster. However, in 1970, a biography was indeed published, co-written by Thomas E. Gaddis and James O. Long, killer, a journal of murder, hit the shelves, and then and they confirmed that they'd gotten in touch with Lesser using Panzerum's own memoirs to create their manuscript. A film was even made and released in 1996 under the same name. Panzerum was played by actor James Woods, known for roles in movies such as Nixon, Chaplin, and Hercules. Then in 1980, Lesser donated all of Panzerum's memoirs and papers to the San Diego State University, where they're housed to this day in the Malcolm A. Love Library. Why? Just get rid of them. Just get rid of them. We don't need to give serial killers. We don't need to hold on to their like souvenirs. It's weird. Carl Panzerum was a monster in its truest form. He was convicted of killing five people. He confessed to 21, but he's suspected of having over a hundred victims to his name, many of whom we'll never know about. Was he born bad? 
Was he corrupted by the events of his early life? In my opinion, it was a bit of both. Yeah, agreed. It's often like nature and nurture combined. He wasn't going to be happy until he saw the whole of humanity dead at his feet. And even then, I don't think the darkness would have let him rest. His rage was all-consuming, and the world paid the price for it. And with that, I leave you, Simon, dear audience, with a movie quote that most of you should recognize, and I believe it encompasses this perfectly. Because some men aren't looking for anything logical like money. They can't be bought, bullied, reasoned, or negotiated with. Some men just want to watch the world burn. Dismembered Appendices Only one appendix today, everyone, but I figured I'd use this section to give a special thanks to my fellow writer and dear friend Emma. This script was turning out to be quite difficult, as Panzerum's tale isn't exactly one that's easy to tell in a normal story format, given that most of the information comes from him alone. However, she aided me in this final process, and for that, I give my heartfelt thanks. That was a nice ending to today's episode. Thank you, Emma, as well. I didn't know you were so involved in this one. And thank you, Matt, for writing it. I think it turned out very nicely. And thank you, dear audience, for being here. If you enjoy this show and you're listening to it as a podcast, please leave a review. If you're on YouTube, like, subscribe, and I'll see you next time. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.